0: Hi, I'm Clara Hendrickson, and welcome to The Wonk Memos, a show that breaks down the big ideas shaping today's headlines. Whether it's the future of job automation, the gender pay gap, or tax reform, each episode I'll do the homework so you don't have to. I won't pretend to know everything or have all the answers, but my commitment is to help you navigate these complex ideas, talk to the experts, ask them questions, and admit what I don't know. And if you think I've gotten something wrong or you want to give me feedback, I'm all yours. Okay, let's get to today's big idea. Today I'm gonna to break down the Census Bureau's annual survey on income, poverty, and health insurance. If you're curious, you can check out the full report on the Census Bureau's website at www.census.gov. We're going to focus on the Census Bureau's findings on Americans' income. In 2015, median household income grew by 5.2% from the previous year. This marks the first annual increase in median household income and the largest single-year increase since the Census Bureau started keeping track of this number in 1967. And it wasn't just the uber-rich who did well. In fact, gains were concentrated to lower-income households. I spoke with Isabel Sawhill, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, to get some help making sense of the
1: survey. This is Isabel Sawhill. Uh, I'm a senior fellow in the Economic Studies program. So
0: let's just start with the census survey, which came out a couple weeks ago now. When you saw it, what did you first make of the results?
1: I thought they were very encouraging. Um, you know, family incomes were up by 5.2% on average. Uh, people at the bottom had bigger increases in income than people at the top. And given all the income inequality we've seen in recent years, that was, a, I think, a very uh, encouraging trend. Um, more people are covered by health insurance than ever. Uh, so overall, it was a very uh, encouraging report. And I think
0: a lot of people echoed that sentiment that it was exciting to see incomes growing for poor Americans and not just the wealthiest. Can you talk about what this might mean for the future of social mobility? Do you think we'll see any reversal of trends anytime soon?
1: Well, it kind of depends what you mean by social mobility and what your story is about all of that. Um, When people talk about social mobility, they usually mean intergenerational mobility, meaning how well do children who are born poor uh, do by the time they're adults? How many of them are able to become, say, middle class uh, in adulthood? And how many of them stay stuck at the bottom? So, you know, one um, month's figures are not going to tell you anything about intergenerational mobility. But they're still hopeful in the following sense. Uh, if you believe, as I do, that a very high degree of income inequality uh, has an adverse effect on long-term mobility, then the data we just talked about uh, have a should have a positive effect, at least if, they, if we continue to see good reports of that sort. The way I like to put it is that when the rungs on the ladder get narrower together, because inequality has fallen, then it should be easier to climb the ladder, and so mobility should increase.
0: I've been really focused on this number, 3.5 million people lifted out of poverty in 2015. So this probably means that some amount of economic stress is eliminated from their lives, but these people are still living in the same neighborhood, sending their kids to the same school. Can you talk about what it looks like to sort of be lifted out of poverty?
1: I think what uh, you're suggesting here is that um, poverty alone or income alone is not an adequate measure of um, what people experience in their lives. Uh, certainly, higher income helps, and certainly um, it's a pretty good proxy uh, for many of the other things we care about, such as the kind of neighborhood you live in and. Uh, whether you're food secure, whether you have access to health care, uh, whether your kids go to decent schools. Uh, so um, it's um, it, it's a nice, easy, and convenient um, proxy for some of those other things. But We can't assume that short-term improvements in uh, income are translating into uh, better schools in certain neighborhoods, uh, less crime, uh, less stress, uh, better um, access to health care and all the other things that people would like to have in their lives. So I want to turn to the
0: politics of this. It was sort of surprising for me to see such good news in the survey because this election season has focused on issues of economic inequality, wage stagnation, and job loss. And to me, the survey shows that the economy is doing well, and it's sort of doing well for people across the board. How have you been able to square the rhetoric of this election with what the survey actually shows?
1: I think the rhetoric in this election is not reflecting the latest Census Bureau data. It's reflecting what's been going on for uh, years now, if not decades. And the recent trends, longer-term trends, have not been positive. Uh, We have had a period during which economic growth has slowed down a lot, in which we've been through the so called Great Recession, in which people lost their jobs, lost the value that was uh, embedded in their houses, and saw all kinds of um, difficult um, uh, stresses in their lives. So, um, th- this uh, short term report has really uh, no bearing. Uh, on the longer-term picture here. I mean, we hope it does. We hope it augurs well for the future, but it doesn't uh, explain why people are um, not suddenly happy. I wouldn't expect them to be.
0: And then another sort of political element that a lot of people latched onto in the beginning was this discrepancy between urban and rural incomes. At first, on the surface, it, it seemed like Incomes were rising in urban areas and declining in rural areas, but this turned out not to be true. A lot of people liked the idea because it helped to explain Trump politics. Did it surprise you at all that there wasn't an urban-rural discrepancy in
1: income? I would presume that um, you're going to find early in a recovery period more vibrancy, more dynamism in urban areas and in rural areas. So I don't think it would be terribly surprising if there was some difference there. Uh, but um it's um, it's it's not um, something that I would worry about in in this very short period of time.
0: Incomes were still higher in
1: two thousand seven and nineteen
0: ninety nine than they were in two thousand fifteen how have you been making sense of this this gap in income over time uh,
1: that's really the critical question here for all of our um enthusiasm about the good news in the latest report, uh, we do need to remember that incomes uh, adjusted for inflation are still lower uh, than they were before the recession and even lower than they were in the late 1990s. So uh, we are not growing very rapidly. And um, not only are we not growing very rapidly, but whatever growth we've had has been very unevenly distributed. So um, one good report doesn't really change the big picture uh, or the long-term picture. And I'm uh, working on a book now on economic growth and how we need to redirect more of the growth that we have uh, to people at the bottom, make it a little broader, and how we need to invest uh, in education and in infrastructure uh, and in research, and how we need to also worry about whether people have enough time to take care of their families. Um, so there's plenty of challenges uh, ahead still. And if you were to advise the policymaking community on these matters,
0: what would you say is the top priority for them as they look forward to the economic future?
1: Uh, My top priority for a new administration is uh, to maintain full employment. Uh, If you maintain full employment, then the economy is more likely uh, to grow. When businesses are not seeing uh, people buying goods and services, they are not gonna hire workers. And when workers aren't being hired and getting paid, they don't spend money. And we get into a vicious circle in which we don't grow very fast. So uh, people need jobs. And uh, if they have jobs, then the economy will grow faster and standards of living will grow faster. I think that the uh, uh, challenge here is that we have relied overwhelmingly on monetary policy, meaning the Federal Reserve, to keep interest rates low and boost the economy in that way. But the Federal Reserve is out of gas now. Interest rates can't go any lower, and they've been fooling around with some new measures that are called quantitative easing, but even those are are, um, reaching their limits. So we need a um, more stimulative fiscal policy, which could mean spending on infrastructure, could mean spending on education, um, could mean changing the tax structure and so more tax uh, there's less taxation of people at the bottoms so they have more money to spend but um, we um, uh, are going to have a tough time doing that for political reasons
0: thanks so much Uh uh-huh thank you When the Census survey was released, a New York Times headline declared the end of a pattern of stagnation. The post-recession recovery seems to finally be working, but only time will tell if we are truly entering an era of renewed prosperity in America. There's always plenty of work to be done when it comes to improving the economic lives of Americans. Even though 2015 was a good year for many, median household incomes were higher in 2007 in 1999 than they are today. The United States remains an outlier among peer countries with its exceptional levels of income inequality. Class mobility today is lower in the U.S. than in most other countries. Productivity has been declining for three consecutive quarters. Larry Summers even predicts we will soon face another economic recession. But when reflecting on the survey results, here's something Isabel said that will stick with me for a long time.
1: It gives you some um, confidence that our economy is capable of moving ahead. Uh, yes, it's taken a long time, but uh, you know we are uh, a strong uh, country and a strong uh, with a strong economy. And with the right policies, uh, there's no reason why people shouldn't uh, do better than they have been doing. Thank
0: you so much for listening. Thanks to Isabel Sahil for talking with me. Mark George and Rachel Quester for editorial assistance, and my amazingly talented brother, Swan Hendrickson, for composing the music you heard on today's show. I'm just getting this podcast started, so please tell your friends. And if you dig what you heard, you can rate this podcast on iTunes and leave a review. Catch you next time.